need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, his beautiful dark saber twisted fantasy. It's Andy Greenwald. Did you just do that off the dome? Yes. Wow. <laughs> What's up, man? Uh, welcome to The Watch. It's Monday. What a stack show we have for you today. So a little bit of house cleaning as we get into it. Here's what we're going to do. Me and Andy will talk about Mandalorian. Me and Andy will talk about last night's episode of The Undoing. Me and Andy will talk to none other than Hugh Grant. Andy and I, Chris. I like to, I'm from Philadelphia. We kind of. I know, but on the third one, I got to jump in. Um, so that's what today's show is. Uh, usually we do my recaps of The Crown with Amanda. We're going to save those for a special episode on Thursday where Amanda and I will wrap up season four of The Crown and you can listen to all of our recaps together. So that's going to be a special episode on Thursday. But without further ado, let's get into the watch right after this. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. How are you, man? You look great. I'm, I'm from Philadelphia, too. Chris, I just want to say, before we get into it, what a stacked show. We talked to Hugh Grant. I mean, it's, my it was goodness. Incredible. Incredible. I was uh, so happy for you after all that Daddington stuff. Did it live up to expectations? Well, let, let's, it, it did. And we'll, we'll, let's save the pre-gaming before we get to it. We talked on doing, we did get a little Paddington talk, and we made it in under the wire because we only had a short amount of time before you had to put on a sweater and do uh, Colbert, I believe, because he was doing all press in one day from a hotel suite somewhere in England. Yeah. But, Chris, just happy Blinken 182 day. Um, <laughs> Good job. I know this is, this is not Pod Save America, but I do think it is relevant to our interests when our new Secretary of State designate Twitter bio says, check out my Spotify artist profile. <laughs> and my guy is a shredder. Is he? So what kind, how would you describe uh, the, the possible future Secretary of State's musical like, kind of vibe? Righteous. Yeah? Righteous. Like, you well, know what, what I kind mean? Of, how does it sound like? I, I haven't listened. I just sent you the link. But we'll listen. Maybe he'll come on uh, Tony Blinken. Come on the watch. But... <laughs> I just think I didn't expect it. This is something that's not necessarily relevant to us yet, but I do think it's going to be interesting as we continue to age and the extremely online generation takes over the levers of power in this country and then has this like, you don't even have to go in the internet wayback machine at archive.org to just find these signifiers, right? Of like, check out my, check out my Insta or whatever. I think it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I did not expect it to be a 58-year-old 
you know, Ivy League educated alum of the Clinton and Obama White House who was just like, <laughs> you know, uh, hit me up on Bandcamp. But it's pretty cool, I guess. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I think it's a nice change of pace from what we've had for the last couple of years. Um, Do you, were you surprised not to get the nod for Climate Czar? Me? I mean, the, the, the ship's not sailed yet, you know? Wow. Are, yeah. you, are you suggesting some palace intrigue? Do you think you, think you could make it through the McConnell blockade? <laughs> I think I'm like even odds. It's like CR or Susan Rice, you know, like getting through a Senate confirmation. That's true. You took you had some wild takes on Benghazi back in the day. People can run back to the Hollywood prospectus days, and you were you were letting it fly. You were Sidney Powell levels of concerned. That's right. I remember that. Hugo Chavez funded that movie. Um, how how are you? How are you feeling yeah, about I'm good. the state of our pop cultural world? Yeah, I'm pretty good. World. There's not really that much like news news that I think we sh- that we, we we have such like you know cool shows coming out of the weekend that I didn't, wasn't even really checking for that many headlines this weekend. Do, do you want to then say, like, before we get into Mandalorian, I guess we, we could take a moment to just say, like, Hugh Grant was on our show. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I, I guess it's a it's a testament to both his particular celebrity, where people love him for a variety of reasons, whether it's romantic comedies or the correct reason, which is his villainous turn in Paddington 2. But this felt like a bigger get. Maybe it's because he's been famous for a long time, too. But people were like, oh, wow. I, we were like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know? Hugh Grant's fucking and famous. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was did, I was like, damn, that's Hugh Grant. Yeah, just on a Zoom with us. And you know what let I haven't realized I've realized about him. Maybe we could just talk about undoing now if you want. Um I realized that he has always been this age. It just took him a couple of decades to get there. Like his sort of late fifties curmudgeon, but still kind of has it, still has like a kind of a sexuality to him and like a charm to him. I feel like he has always been that. And it, he was like an old man trapped in a dashing young man's body when he was younger. And now it's like, I wonder if he'll, this will open up some doors of, of him doing a lot of really interesting work in, in this late middle age. I think it has for the last few years, a very English scandal. Um, mm-hmm. The movie you've seen that I haven't seen that you talked to him about. The gentleman. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's Do you interesting. know what that is? Yeah, you've, you've described it to me. It seems like, it, it's not like The Witch. Like, I feel like I could watch this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I'll watch it if you watch Paddington too. How about that? Yeah, okay. Um, the one bit of news that wow. I thought I would met. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're not going to watch it, so I don't have to watch Paddington. The one bit of news that I think we probably should discuss is yeah. the, uh, the Netflix announcement that 62 million people checked out Queen's Gambit. Yeah, so... A couple things to tick off here. One, that's an insane number of people watching a television show. Um, good for Scott Frank. Good for friend of the watch, Anya Taylor-Joy. I guess good for Netflix PR, who continue to try to have it both ways, where they can say, we don't share data except when it's extremely flattering to us. Right. Which is kind of interesting. I, I know we live in an era of norm breaking, <laughs> I would say. But what's funny, and again, like like the other norms that we're alluding to, like 20 years ago, HBO was like Netflix in that they didn't play by the rules. You know, they were the bad boys of television. Yeah. But they also didn't share any ratings data. And that was a much more Nielsen-driven moment, of course. And they never shared information about anything. It was totally opaque and proprietary until The Sopranos went gangbusters. And they couldn't help themselves. But that once they started sharing, 
they felt obligated to share. And then they were in the ratings conversation like all the other broadcast networks and cable networks at the time. Netflix is still just like, this is the most popular thing that's ever been released. And then you're like, oh yeah, how's Glow doing? And they're like, well, who can tell? Yeah, who can tell right. really? <laughs> so it's a, it's a dodge, but it's, it's a successful dodge. Yeah, I thought it was, um, it speaks to the long tail of the show, I think, uh, which has been, it's been really surprising to me, but I, I wonder whether or not the proposition of it being a contained thing, a miniseries, and Sean and Amanda talked about the sort of rise of the miniseries format on, on mm-hmm. Big Pick in a really interesting conversation in conjunction with um, the series of films that Steve McQueen did for Amazon that are starting to premiere now, mm-hmm. uh, Small Axe, which I hope we get to talk about in a future episode. But yeah, I, I mean, there's a little bit of a, of a Queen's Gambit backlash, which I think yeah. um, in some ways is like, there are, there are some cases where I think it's kind of being dismissive because something has reached a certain level of popularity and ubiquity. So you're just kind of being like, yeah, it wasn't that good. And then there are some really thoughtful critiques. I thought Jane Hu's uh, piece in Vulture was actually was quite good and had like a really a lot to say about some issues. Uh, not necessarily, like mostly about like Queen's Gambit being a period piece existing outside of a sense of history that right. I, I found really, really provocative and fascinating. I thought it was a really good piece if people had a chance to check it out. I think that it's important, though, to take a moment, and I think you're right, and I think it's important to take a moment now and stand astride history as the backlash is forming, because it is, inevitably, because mainly because of its enormous popularity, and say, hold on a second. Isn't that the William F. Buckley quote about conservatism standing atop the tide of criticism towards miniseries and say, hey, guys, let's all chill. Because what concerns me about it, and it, it, it's, look, this is baked into social media culture and, and, and the way Twitter responds to things anyway, with, provo- you know, to be provocative, to be noticed, you have to jump out and say wild shit. But mm-hmm. this show is ripe for it. For the very popularity aside, it's ripe for that kind of knee-jerk criticism or reactionary criticism precisely for the same reasons why I think it's worth championing. Because as we said in our many conversations about the show, it's special because it is optimistic. It's special because it is essentially a feel-good, whether you want to call it a sports movie or a buildings roman or whatever, or superhero origin story like Decider did, whatever framework you want to put it into, it is inherently an uplifting story. And I will just say it again for the formal record here. Like, we overrate downers. Mm -hmm. We generally overrate downers because we think they're somehow smarter because they're finally being honest about how reality is. And I think that this show is extremely special because it is exceptionally written, exceptionally directed, phenomenally performed and conceived. And it leaves you feeling a little different than a lot of the other entertainment does at this moment. And it it zagged and other things zig. And I, I just don't, Intelligent criticism like the one you're pointing out is, of course, deserved and merited and worthy of conversation and discussion. That's what good art does and good art can sustain. But miss me with saying it's bad because you can't look at this production design, these performances, this direction and just dismiss it because I think it's a really impressive and worthwhile achievement. That's probably like a, a, a product of like where everything kind of collapses in. If you're reading about TV on Twitter, for instance, like there might be one piece of criticism that says like, Meh, you guys like this show. And then there might be another, which is like Jane's piece, which is an incredibly thoughtful and interesting critique of the show that makes mm-hmm. me think about it in a different way. But those two things start in the same timeline. And I think that like they can get 
they can get uh, kind of viewed with the same lens, unfortunately. But it, yeah, I, I thought that that news is pretty interesting. Let's talk a little bit. Let's do Mandalorian, and then we can I do Undoing, and then we can go to Hugo. Um Carl Weathers directed this episode. Godspeed. You knew that I had to do it. Mm-hmm. Mando! <laughs> My DGA card arrived, sir! I, I got myself in a fraternity with Paul Thomas Anderson! And Paul W.S. Anderson, director of Alien vs. Predator! <laughs> can, can you have him say, can, I, can you be on Cameo with this voice? I would pay you money to do say like extremely director shit like we're in a meal penalty. You know what I mean? Mando, I'm losing my light! Yes, yes! Great job by Carl Weathers. Great job all around. By the way, not easy to direct an episode that you are also in 70% of. Yeah. Yes. And and I will I will be honest with you, at times, like when he was running his fine 72-year-old self out of the gun turret, I was like trying to read facial expressions because is he also thinking like, am I in frame? You know what I mean? Like it, it's just an yeah. extra way of thinking about it. So good job, Carl Weathers. Good job, John Favreau and the entire team for empowering cast members and letting them be involved and direct the show because it's going great. Um But most of all, this is the segment that I think we do now every week suddenly, and no one is more surprised than I am, where we just say, good job, everybody involved. This show, it's not just decent. It's not just good brand management anymore. At some point in the last three or four weeks, the last dominoes of skepticism fell inside of my heart, and I'm just delighted by the show now. I'm fully and wholeheartedly delighted by it, and and I was probably the last one. This show is in full flight right now because it has established its own cadence. I don't think people are going into it to get like a Ray cameo anymore or to like see, you know, like Ray's dad in the background of a scene somehow, whoever that is. And yet I think people are completely comfortable with the pace at which it's moving because they trust that they're going to get these little tidbits like at the end. Chris, just side note. I know we don't remember a lot about Rise of Skywalker, but Ray's dad was... Don Jr. Palpatine. <laughs> Just I, thought that was her, on, I thought that was her grandfather. Her grandfather is Emperor Palpatine. Her dad oh, right, right, was right. Don Palpatine Jr. <laughs> high on Regeneron, the Force, and maybe some other stuff. Right. Just making wild-ass opinions on, uh, you know, the Outer Rim Parlor? cable channels. Yeah, right. Um, I'm super into this mashup, by the way, but okay. please continue. I can't remember what my point was. Oh, I have a couple of things. So like, yeah, I think that this show has now kind of achieved sort of bulletproof status where everybody's comfortable with the week to weakness of it. Even if you're like, I I even think it's alleviated some of the pressure on it by just being like, you know what? We're going to do a mission of the week. They're going to kind of feel pretty similar. We're going to go to some pretty cool places. When a TIE fighter chases the Razor Crest, it's going to look like we spent a hundred million dollars on it. And it's it's just a pretty fun hang every week. And every time I think they, they can't think of anything else to do with this little green guy, they put him in a classroom. And I got to say, you know, this was brought up to us a couple of times. You know, we, we, we largely skated past the egg-eating controversy that erupted. Huge controversy. Where a lot of... Um, I, w- I would go as far as to call it the biggest controversy of November 2020 in America. Where... Whether I, somehow Entertainment Weekly found someone to write in and be like, this was not okay when when Yoda ate the endangered eggs of, mm. of the frog woman. I will say, 
This guy continues to have a very selective use of the force. <laughs> They've been in some pretty tight fucking situations here. Some really sweaty jams. Mm-hmm. And so far, the only time he's ever thrown up is a little, the little hand to get, get something going. Not the going. only time he's thrown up, by the way. No, is to, to cop these neon Oreos that he steals from a child. It's savage. Yeah. I so love that he's a savage. He's a little shit. It's great. It's great. And by the way, um, I'm painting myself as the biggest skeptic of the show. So there was kind of a breakthrough moment in my household last night that I may or may not get in trouble for revealing, but you know, it's just us here chatting. I have become what I most feared, which is the person who, when Baby Yoda does something endearing, which is at least six, seven times an episode, will call out to my wife who is busy doing the crossword puzzle or reading about like how Moderna managed their RNA sequencing on the vaccine uh, and be like, look what the cute alien baby did. And I did that last night when he was, you know, Danny Glovering the bomb. Mm-hmm. I mean, the engine room with the red, blue and the, you know, the red wire and the blue yeah. wire. And I got, I got, I, I had a, a, basically a pit of Sarlacc reaction. Why? Like, I don't, I know you want me to like this, but I'm, I'm busy. So just, you know, enjoy your show. And I was like, okay. And I kind of slinked away. And then I heard something very unexpected, which was an involuntary chuckle of delight (laughs) when he electrocuted himself. Now, is it because Baby Yoda, like like many of us, Daddingtons and Mommingtons, reminded us in that moment of our own children when we've had them hotwire our spaceships, metaphorically speaking? But the point is, we hooked it. We hooked her. Good. Because it it is irresistible, and it's a genius thing. So... I have a lot. Say, I have a lot to say about this episode, which was really entertaining. And your point about like almost falling in love with the show, not in spite of its sort of uh, quaintness or old fashionedness or quirks, but really celebrating them. Like, what percentage of episodes, Chris, are are characters running through hallways that are shh, don't look closely? It's just the same hallway over and over again. Like every spaceship oh, slash base they go into. Step for, like, I, and I will also amazing. say, so, as someone who is not scared of getting involved in the mythology of things or getting involved in the canon mm-hmm. of stuff. Or, and, I, mm-hmm. and I know that I joke around a lot, but like, I, I like to have like a handle about that on that. Like, so the empire's back. Like, that's well, just happened. Like, I know I, it's the I, new order or the first order or whatever, but like, they just have all the cool old outfits. Well, I think they still did. I think that that's, it's like the few, it's the vestiges. Now, my question is. So there like, was no dry cleaning on the Death Star. Well, no, my, my question is like, did their pensions continue to vest? You know what I mean? Like at a certain point, are you like, I feel like my, my employment options are better elsewhere. Right. Unclear. And if you are someone who like is an habitué of the boards, like I, I suppose this show in some way, and thankfully not in a major way, is explaining how, how it never really went away. And some renegade people like um, Ma Fring is like, turning it into the first order or whatever nonsense it was in Moff Hermanos. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, it still exists, all of that, but it's fine. I just feel really relaxed in my enjoyment of it as they run through the same thing over and over again, because it doesn't matter. And it's actually kind of cleansing. There's something almost Zen about my enjoyment of this show now, because Mm -hmm. even, you know, we like to paint ourselves as, um, you know, either like 
jaded older fans or contrarians. And, you know, we have often, and even in our conversations of the show once it's aired, continue to kind of say, like, is this the grown-up Star Wars show we wanted? Is Lucasfilm going to let people take off the training wheels and blah, blah, blah? And it's so much more, it got us, it's kind of more beautiful than that. Because what I am really struck by, however many episodes in, we are 12, I guess, total across the two seasons, is the simplicity of it. They didn't overthink it to a degree that I, we certainly, I mean, we weren't charged with doing this, but we certainly overthought it. You know what I mean? It just reduces it to something that is so simple, it makes everything else look foolish. And it's it's this combination of like, well, what do we like out of this mythology? What do we want out of it? And sometimes what we want out of it is just funny rubber-suited aliens tapping at screens that don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And touching buttons. Like, that is so essential to Star Wars. Like, everyone, everyone of these ships has buttons and levers. Who cares what they mean? Just touch them and do the stuff. Similarly, like, when they're flying away from the TIE fighters and, and Grief is rocking the guns, right? And there's a radar that is apparently high-tech enough to immediately show a stormtrooper lifting his arm to throw a bomb. <laughs> but they don't have... But their other technology is basically like the Will I Am hologram form yeah. across the galaxy. Yeah. Fine. We don't want more of that. We just want goofy suits and aliens and chowder hoses, you know? And the rest will take care of itself. What did you think of like smuggling runs being taught to children at that age? Oh, pro. Yeah. Pro, pro, pro. I mean, look, the outer rims are rough, man. I mean, we, we learned about that. I, here are the other lingering questions I have, though. I, I Thank you for bringing that up. And I say them with love. One is... Timeline, timeline stuff feels a little wonky. Like, for example, Mando was gone like two episodes. And yeah, like he had some bumpy adventures with the frog lady and on the ice planet and all that, right? But but travel, as established by light speed and all that, is not that hard. You know, when they're right. like, you probably won't be coming around here soon, X-Wing fighter. And he's like, literally all I have to do is push a button and I can be here. And yet in the time he's been gone, uh, Cara Dune and Grief have completely revolutionized yeah. a, a society and yes. in fact built schools and installed your boy's favorite thing to see in sci-fi landscapes, a thriving outdoor spice market. <laughs> <laughs> but that timeline compression yeah. is Tina nothing. Tina Carano, like a, a young Randy Weingarten. Just, just kind of <laughs> <laughs> yes, she, she cares about the kids and the learning. And also I have to the, say, of all the things that Gina Carano is very convincing at, Caring that she set up a school is not one of them. How do you feel about her relationship to her her stoat? Like her small, like space stoat pet. She carried <laughs> it. I liked her snack pouch, which contains like the Barack Obama approved seven almonds per day. And she gave it to the animal. Um, the, the other timeline thing, and again, I don't care. That's what's so beautiful about this. It's just, it's enjoyable. I don't care. It does the important things, not the things that we often mistake are important. But- that ship was in pretty shitty condition. These guys, Grief's guys, must be the greatest mechanics in history because they have that shit factory fresh mm-hmm. in what I want to say is an hour and a half. That is No, they incredible. do good work. They do good work. Let's get, we should do undoing before we get to Hugh Grant. Okay. Thank you to everybody who's been congratulating me on calling uh, Henry as, as the prime suspect, if not the murderer. As is always the case, though, you know, I feel like they revealed that like 30 minutes too early in this in this series for it to be true now. 
So uh, yes, right. last night's episode, at the end of the episode, Grace Frazier finds the missing murder weapon, presumably, in her son's violin case. He's only 10 or whatever, but still bad job hiding things. Kids should be, be, there's just, why would you put it in like your violin case? You could just like throw in the river. Um, to be fair, I don't have children that play the violin, but <laughs> do I they can't play imagine. Sculpting hammers? But they are they are sculptors. Thank okay. you. I, I encourage their artwork and their freelance murdering. I I, I how often are you going to go in your kid's violin case to make sure there's a violin in it? You know what right. I mean? It's not like there's going to be a Tommy gun in there because it's a 1930s uh, uh, gangster film. You right. know? Well, but, right, so I I just feel like so they reveal at the end of the episode that that the murder weapon presumably is at least in Henry's possession, and mm-hmm. he they have continued to hammer home him popping up weirdly. Scaring her, spying on people, having weird vibes at restaurants, like that whole scene at the restaurant where you know the guys just are keep they keep bringing them bread service throughout. It's, the, a, it's a divine bread service. That yeah, they, do. they bake their own rolls. They're served warm. And I, I, I love that whole scene just because it's just like every character gets more and more agitated as this is happening. But Henry's whole like you know if you promise never to cheat on her again, can we be a family to get again? And you know like his sort of his desires are are quite clear at this point. That being said, revealing it at the end of the penultimate episode of the series suggests to me that there is another shoe to drop. And I do think that there is just a tremendous amount of seemingly unnecessary cutaways to both Lily Rabe and Donald Sutherland. So I'm not saying I'm betting the field, yeah, I don't want to be be unfair where it's like, it could be Beto, but it could be Kamala, but it could be Elizabeth Warren. It's like, I think it it's probably something to do with Henry and then like a person, like a conspiracy basically participating and trying to save Henry from. I, I appreciate the analogy. I think the difference is that Henry, as a suspect, didn't struggle through Iowa and New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. this isn't Broadchurch. Like, Henry has led the field from the beginning. You know what I mean? Like, he, he, he we all fell, in, in Broadchurch, you fall in love with the other candidates early and you cycle through them before you settle on someone. The interesting thing about this show, and, you know, I, I enjoyed this episode. I've enjoyed watching it much more than I expected to from my reaction to the first one. And I think that when we talked about the first one, you actually did make the Broadchurch comparison. We assumed that it would be a wider net. Yes. And what makes this show, I think, compelling is that it, and and at times frustrating because we felt the Henry thing a little bit, maybe too strongly for full engagement. But at the same time, what makes it compelling is that it hasn't been that interested in in muddying those waters. There are only a limited number of characters. And you're right, like the Lily Rape, Lily Rape's presence in the show almost feels arbitrary at this point. Like they just needed someone for Grace to be on the phone with. So there's probably something else there, but I don't see how you get to her being a murderer. Similarly, Donald Sutherland, I've seen people saying online, well, he has motive, he has this and that, but I I just simply don't see it unless the murder happened in the the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is where he spends (laughs) most of his time. So what that leaves us with is, you know, the murder weapon is in the home. So the murderer is in the family. And... I still think you gotta you gotta bet the favorite. I think that it Henry's behavior throughout has suggested it, and maybe part of the sh- if 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 the show does something that is runs counter to murder mystery tradition mm-hmm. and drops this too early, 
it leaves open the possibility that in the final episode, which we should say no one has, has not been screened for critics, no one has seen it, right. could become something different. In which case, it's no longer about Grace's life unraveling. It's about the reality and what will she do now that reality has punctured her last illusion of her happy life, which could make for a compelling finale. The other alternative is that it is Hugh Grant's character, that it always was. The third one, and I'm going to ask your opinion about this, and I cede the floor. I'm sorry I've been going on about it. A lot of people... People are talking. A lot of people have, even people have said to me, boy, Grace has a lot of these sort Flash, of blackouts. flashes. And, yeah. you know, and are, is that the ultimate undoing that it was her? Uh, is that still in play in your mind? And how Definitely. would you feel about it? Definitely. I Okay, so this, this is sort of like, Chris, who do you think is going to win the NCAA tournament? And I pick five teams, you know, but they are, they are doing a really good job in terms of playing with the conventions of mysteries where they are, they're definitely like leaving the, the door open for a bunch of people and have spent so little time on the actual investigation. Like all mm-hmm. we have is Edgar Ramirez's character kind of being like, we were looking at this person, you know, they haven't really gone a lot into like what forensic evidence is there? Like what, what do they, ha- what do we have on each person? So there's going to be some red herrings, but if, it wouldn't surprise me if Grace was deeply involved in it, just given the fact that she has she has these moments where she obviously is remembering being painted. You know, she is she is she remembers sitting for that for that portrait in some way. And right. I I don't know. We should say, well, a couple things. Like on a on from a business perspective, and maybe we'll talk about this more after the finale. This has seems like it's been a success for HBO. People are talking about it. We're talking about it. People are compelled by it. I'm curious about the value because this is, as we've said many times, this is an expensive show. It looks expensive. The star wattage is expensive. And is that still, but if it is ultimately just like, you know, a, a gotcha whodunit, a family murder mystery thing, are those two things out of whack in terms of like the business strategy versus the investment of it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Could they could they get a is there a cheaper version of this that might be more compelling because they're the stars are less starry, you know, and maybe we're a little bit more because uh, I think a lot of people are watching it not just for the mystery but because it look it's Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, yeah, um, yeah. and it, it's so like that, great New York locations, yeah. That's part of the conversation that we can have after the finale, and we'll talk about that on Monday to set up our interview with Hugh Grant. Uh, we talked to him, as we said, uh, two weeks ago during his media day. That's why if you watched him on Colbert or any of the TV he's done, <laughs> he's wearing the same outfit because he was he was lining him up and knocking him down. But he was surprisingly game. I think we were both a little... Uh, he doesn't like doing this stuff. You know, He doesn't really like doing press. He barely likes acting, as he said to us. But he was a very good sport and we enjoyed talking to him. We spoke to him about the show through episode five, mm-hmm. which is why we didn't run it until now. But, and he muses, but he doesn't, he says something interesting, I think about the finale, but it's not really spoilery. Right. right there's, because, I mean, he was very careful not to spoil anything. And like I said, we don't, we don't know what happens in the finale. We haven't seen it. I, I just want to let people know we were limited in our time with him or else the Paddington two conversation would have gone on considerably longer. But Chris also has some um, really ironclad clauses in his contract that allow him to just sign out. If I say the words "kids movie," talk or to my guys at UTA if you have a problem in, with that. <laughs> or endearing, it's uh, 
it's a wrap from him. So I think we should get into it. Yeah, we'll get into our, our interview with Hugh Grant just after a quick break on Thursday. Uh, it'll be Thanksgiving. So happy holidays to everybody. We'll be putting up all of our crown recaps for people to check out for season four with me and Amanda Dobbins. So that'll, that'll be happening. And then we have a great week the following week. So keep watching Industry. Keep watching The Undoing. We'll be talking about those shows. Check out A Teacher. We'll be talking about that soon. And, and yeah. if hit your local independent bookstores and get a copy of our friend Melissa Mares's book, All Right, All Right, All Right, Oral History of Days and Confused. We will be talking to Melissa about the movie and about her book uh, next week. Mm-hmm. And just in general, at this time of year, Chris and I are very grateful for our listeners for letting us do this. Yeah. We love you guys. Please stay, stay safe. safe. Yeah. Please don't travel if you don't have to. Please stay home this year and have a otherwise great Thanksgiving, all you Baranskis. Hugh Grant. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. Jedi are being murdered. Now streaming, Star Wars Returns, only on Disney+. Plus. I didn't do it! Believe me! She was my student. Let me be the one to bring her in. Now she's a student of the dark side. An acolyte. Star Wars The Acolyte. New episodes Tuesdays, only on Disney+. Plus. Andy and I are so thrilled to be joined by Hugh Grant from The Undoing on The Watch Podcast today. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. And our listeners have seen episode five of The Undoing, so we can talk through that that dramatic episode. I was reading some of the press that you did before the series actually went up, and you seemed like you were just like pregnant with things that you wanted to say but could not say about this show because of spoilers and because of all, all these sort of rules that we have about how far we can go ahead. But now that five have aired... We were still waiting for the last one, but what was the thing that you really wanted to say about Jonathan in the beginning when people were asking you about this character that you felt like you couldn't really reveal? Was it his journey through prison and into the legal system or was it more just sort of the slow reveal of of his backstory and his past that you found fascinating? 
I still can't really say anything very interesting <laughs> because um, well, thanks. <laughs> I hope people by now are, you know, still wondering if he's guilty or not and whether he's a total psychopath or just a man who had a weak moment with one of his patients' mothers. Uh, that's so I, 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 it's, I can't go further than that except to say, yeah, I suppose when I was doing these interviews about the episode one, I, it was very, very difficult because I just had to say, well, he seems to be a very nice guy. <laughs> and that really is about the most boring thing I've ever had to say in an interview. What an incredible six-episode run that would have been, though, had you just been a very nice guy throughout. <laughs> well, it was my whole career 20 years ago. <laughs> well, well, that's actually a question that I had, because as someone of the appropriate age to have first encountered your work in Four Weddings, I did wonder if you took a particular pleasure, as I do, and I think a lot of audience members do now, in kind of weaponizing your trademark charm in a role like this. Uh, there's the scene with the attorney, you know, where she is staring at Jonathan and is dazzled and says, you know, basically, basically par to paraphrase her, this could work because you are very compelling. Yeah, but she's clever. She's testing me. Don't yeah. forget mm -hmm. in that moment. She's testing the depths of my vanity, but mainly she's seeing, am I actually going to come on to her at that moment? True. Um, <laughs> she's damn good. And yeah, it's a good moment. But, but yes, I think by now, after episode five, we know that certainly Jonathan has a problem with vanity. You know, I think my colleague at the hospital says, I never got the God complex memo. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, like a lot of doctors, I think he has sort of got the greatness and, or has had the greatness. He can save lives and he slightly gets off on it and he loves the gratitude of the, of the families, which is wonderfully sick seeing he's, as he's, you know, trying to cure their children's cancer. But I, I do wonder, though, does that appeal to you when you're looking at roles and you're, and you're fielding offers, this, this opportunity to, to play the charm that American audiences first came to know you for and then also you know, put a little edge behind it and, and, and perhaps play against type? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I'm not sure that I, that is what I'm looking for. I'm just looking for dark, twisted, interesting, different. But sometimes, yeah, there's, a, there's sort of do that via a curdled version of my old romantic comedy, sort of charming persona. I mean, even in uh, in A Very English Scandal, I don't know if you saw that uh, yeah. that series, or I was Jeremy Thorpe, the politician, you know, he was a very charming, smooth, old Etonian uh, member of parliament. And uh, there was a lot of charm, but of course, beneath that velvet glove, there was an iron fist worse than an iron fist we're murderers. <laughs> well, although Jonathan has a, a not bad fist himself, or at least some yeah, sharp right. pincers, because we, I was wondering when they were saying, Hugh, please come play this part, did they say you could also, in your performance, become king of the yard at Rikers? I, I know like that, that might not have been on your There's a whole other show, show in that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we bring that moment off, or is it absurd? <laughs> you know what, I, I have to say, I thought it was pretty good, and I, I that was the one of the first times that my eyebrow raises about Jonathan in a really significant way. I mean, up until then, it's 50-50, did he do it or did he not? But when he has that interaction with the guy who wants his autograph, you're like, well, this guy also gets into fights. Like, this is a guy who will stand his own on the, on the prison yard. Like, that. I thought yeah. that was a fascinating scene. It's a tricky fight, though, because, you know, I'm an old, fat, middle-aged doctor, and he's a young, uh, super fit, sort of, I don't know what he is, some kind of criminal. So it, it couldn't look as though I was in any way winning that fight. In a way, it's the kind of um, dark version of my fight with 
Colin Firth. I cheat. I fight like a girl. I, I bite him. <laughs> yeah. Boys aren't supposed to bite. Fair. I was wondering, Hugh, do you, do you typically, uh, as, a, as a viewer, watch stuff like The Undoing? Are you a mystery fan? Or do, do you find yourself watching a lot of series like these, these sort of limited mystery series, like whether it's Broadchurch or, or, or whatever? Like, have you found yourself as a fan of these in the past? Uh, no. I need to do a lot of catching up. A lot of catching up. I only really watch sport on the TV. So I still need to watch The Sopranos. Okay. I'm, we won't I'm give very, it away. very behind. <laughs> we, we, we generally talk about shows like that on this podcast. So if you have any questions, we'd love to take this time <laughs> for that. I mean, the only one I have probably been addicted to recently is, is The Crown. Because although I pretend to be somewhat sort of liberal and progressive in my politics, I'm secretly obsessed with royalty. <laughs> <laughs> that you, you've got one of us. Uh, Chris here is a big fan of The Crown. Yeah. I, I do have to ask: when watching the series so far, we were both struck by the number of international performers playing New Yorkers, uh, and <laughs> yet only Dr. Jonathan Fraser manages to maintain his birth well, accent. And yeah. I wondered if that was the source of any uh, friction on set when everyone else is laboring <laughs> with these American <laughs> syllables, and you're just having the time of your life uh, speaking well. as you would normally. I don't know why I made that a kind of thing that I, I, ages ago, when I had a little bit of success and America first invited me to be in anything, I was resistant to be American because I always thought, if you want an American, hire an American. And, and uh, I, I just, uh, but, but I think now I was wrong. I was wrong. I should have done it. <laughs> <laughs> and I have done it. Were there some iconic New York parts that you turned down? Like, could you have been Henry Hill in Goodfellas or something? Or? Yeah, I was offered that, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no. I, but I, I, I did do, I have done American accents. I did, I did a movie of the week in the, in the sort of early 90s in a, uh, called Our Sons. Julie Andrews and Anne Margaret. And uh, I'm American in that. You can have, dig it up and you can have a real laugh. Well, you do a great American accent in episode one, almost to taunt the actor Noah, who plays your son, who I believe is also English. And yet he's forced to, to, to keep up the, the facade the entire time. <laughs> well, he does a brilliant, yeah, yeah. I forgot he that he's English. He's, he's actually from Manchester, he talks like that. You know, the Manchester <laughs> accent. And uh, we didn't hear it for six months because he did that thing that Rene Zellweger used to do of staying in, you know, character when they're off screen. And, then, and suddenly at the rap party, you get this little mank. <laughs> Didn't know who he was. So I, I speaking of, of all this stuff, I really do love the undoing as a New York show. And I was curious whether or not you thought that you and Nicole and, and Suzanne brought a different sensibility to a New York film drama like this because you are sort of outsiders. I know you spent a lot of time in New York, but is there what is it the thing that you that you like about the way the undoing captures New York City? Because I think it's like a, a wonderful portrait of it. Suzanne Beer is a proper, as you know auteur, arty-farty, European, ex-dogma filmmaker. So it, it's all down to her. She knows how to create texture, as, as a lot of those Scandinavian directors do, particularly, you know, in the noir kind of genre. And uh, I'm, I'm fascinated watching it again. I'm not watching me or, or any of the actors. I'm, I'm watching what she's up to. It's so interesting, all these sort of just weird shots and, and uh, atmospheric shots and very clever use of music and sound. There's a whole other story being told beneath David Kelly's incredibly 
um, expert American thriller script. There's a there's a there's a Euro film going on, mm-hmm. and I like that um, combination. It reminds me a bit of when Polanski first worked in America, and he brought sort of dark, weird Polish directing to you know quite genre American writing like Rosemary's Baby. I have to, uh, because of the way that episode five ends, um, with suddenly uh, suspicion turning towards Henry uh, with discovery of the hammer in the closet, um, classic place to put a hammer or a murder weapon. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a parent of, of young children, who I am as well, <laughs> do you have any uh, thoughts now that you, that you can share about Jonathan and uh, his wife's parenting priorities as it comes to uh, screens? Because from my viewpoint, I'm not saying that Henry is necessarily a murderer. We, we will discover that in due time. But he does spend an awful lot of time He watching. watches television like a murderer. Put it that way. He does. That's yeah. what I'm... So, so do, do, you, do you feel like maybe limits should have been set? Because that, for me, was the red herring before the reveal of the hammer. Well, if you're right that a child that watches too much screen is a murderer, then I have five murderers on my hands. <laughs> Well, especially all rules are out the window during the pandemic. I think that we all get a pass on that. Yeah, that we've all told ourselves that. <laughs> yes, we have. Poor little things. Some of them are going blind. I mean, they have to wear glasses now. It's awful. At least he's watching a lot of New York One, though. That's the most important thing is he's supporting local journalism. He's civic minded. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, finally, I, I this is a, a, a personal uh, passion for me to ask this. I imagine that the producers of the show first reached out to you um, with Jonathan's prison fight in mind, having seen you acquit yourself well in prison in the modern masterpiece Paddington 2, which, to my mind, is one of the finest films of this century. Uh, And your performance is perhaps the best thing in it. The thrill of the undoing, of course, is that it is a Paddington villain reunion with you and Nicole. (laughs) I imagine much of your conversation was focused on uh, your, your, you know, sharing the screen with an animated bear. I felt he should be in it. Yeah. Uh, God, yes. An extended universe. Yeah. Yeah, I lobbied that it just it would add an extra layer or texture if in some quite heavy scene between me and Nicole on the streets of New York with all the extras going past in the background one of them is suddenly Paddington and we never <laughs> comment on it or anything. But yeah, I felt he should be there. You're preaching to the choir here. I, I yeah. in, in all seriousness about that that role, I mean, I, I do think that it is one of the most amazing performances I can remember seeing because y- you bring so much to it and there's so much there. Was that as much of a joy to make as it is for us to watch? And in the case of having small children during a pandemic, watch again and again and again and again. <laughs> well, you know, I, I hate my job. I find it <laughs> just nothing but mental torture and anxiety. But... I will say that one came out quite well. And uh, so I'm, I'm quite proud of that. And my children do now, yes, strangely love it. I took them to a screening when it was just about to come out. And they sat there and the one sitting next to me kept saying, Daddy, why are you in this so much? He was hating it. <laughs> <laughs> but now they, they, they do love it. And they can quote the whole thing and do the song and dance number at the end. Can they also quote large swaths of the gentleman or have we not gotten to that stage yet i'm not sure i can show them the gentleman yet i did try to show it to my 92 year old ex-military dad the other day and i can't say he he really loved it 
But he so the sweet spot with... is between the ages, perhaps. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, me. Exactly. That's exactly me. Somewhere between a child and a 92-year-old ex-mill. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. this is, uh, if, if you dislike the job of acting, you will dislike this job even more, perhaps. But I, we feel compelled to ask, which is listeners who have been enjoying five episodes of The Undoing with one episode to go, if we were to, to, to force you into the uncomfortable role of, of pitch man or hype man for the final episode, mm. can you give us uh, any crumb or any sort of uh, sizzle <laughs> for what's to come? Um, well... I will say that I had to do some stuff in episode six that uh, made me, it's either sublime or the worst thing ever committed to celluloid <laughs> or, or digital as it now is. Uh, it was, so it's, it, it's dangerous what happens in, in six. That's phenomenal. And I, That's enticing. I, probably no marmalade sandwiches, unfortunately. I'm not saying there are not marmalade sandwiches. <laughs> you, you, you've made my day. <laughs> okay. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to see how everything wraps up with The Undoing. And, and thank you so much for all your great work. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.